come this Lord's Day to the Sunday before Easter, and a lot of people call it Palm Sunday, in recognition of the incident where the disciples cut down palm branches and waved them as Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem. And looking at the text together, it's not clear whether that incident took place on Sunday or not, but there was a weekend there in which that and several other well-known incidents took place. And I thought this Lord's Day to speak about the providence of God, whereby He works all things after the counsel of His will. You know, the Scriptures teach us that the Lord works all things according to His good pleasure. But that doesn't mean that he reaches down and manually manipulates things. The creatures have a creaturely freedom whereby they choose to do the things that they most delight in. But God ordains in the background the way these things will unfold so that he is in complete control of everything while the creatures go about their lives seemingly at least, completely at liberty, to do what they will. We see this working out of God's will all through history, particularly in the Gospels. You think about the way we as creatures, mankind, we argue incessantly about how our acts today might someday impact the future. But it's all speculation for the most part. You know, if you push a, a glass off the table, you're pretty sure that it's going to fall to the ground and probably break. These are the things that children learn as they grow up. Inevitable consequences of direct acts. But the consequences out in future are more difficult to predict, aren't they? And think about all the to and fro and all the debate about global warming and whether... If I light a candle today, does that have a negative impact upon the temperature of the world and the heights of the oceans and so forth? And no matter what the public officials tell us, from a scientific point of view, there is no way to know what the outcome will be. The system is too large, too complicated, and not subject to experimental verification and proof. So we really don't know what the effect of what we do has on the climate. Another example which is in the news nowadays is all the speculation about whether we do this or do that. Will we make Putin angry? And will he start setting off nuclear warheads? And to be truthful, none of us know the answer to any of those questions. And there's arguments this way and there's arguments that way. And there's the purists who say we should just do what's right and don't give any thought to the consequences. And others, the pragmatists, who say, no, 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 we have to be very careful here. We have to walk a thin line. But really, nobody knows what Putin's going to do except the Lord. I don't even know if Putin knows what Putin's going to do. And I'm not here to take a position one way or the other on what we should do about the Ukraine. Because we really can't know what the consequences are of our acts will be down the line. And nowhere is this better seen than in the events that took place that weekend that we call Palm Sunday. That weekend that led to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And how 
could anybody have seen that except the people who were plotting it? How could any of the disciples have seen it? Of course, the Lord Jesus knew what was going to happen. He always knew. That was the end to which he had been brought forth into this world. It was to die a sacrifice for the sins of his people, whom he would redeem. But his disciples and the apostles and the crowds and the common people, none of them could know that all the glorious events of this weekend would end up in the death of the Lord Jesus. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, his resurrection. But I thought I would present to you three vignettes that display God's providence and the way he uses the acts of men to accomplish his will. Vignette number one. We know of this story perfectly well, for we have preached on it many, many times. The story of Mary anointing the Lord Jesus with the ointment from the alabaster box. And John's Gospel gives a good breakdown of this story. Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Do you remember the previous chapter in John's Gospel describes that glorious event? There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. So this is a supper, a celebration dinner for the Lord Jesus to celebrate His raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus was there in testimony to what Christ had done. Then took Mary, Lazarus' sister, a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And given to the poor. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bare what was put therein. Then said Jesus, let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always ye have with you, but me ye have not always." Now notice that this glorious act of worship of the Lord Jesus, we must take from it this thought that we should never think that an act of worship in honor of the Lord Jesus is too extravagant because there will always be somebody to criticize it for being wasteful and impractical. And so Judas Iscariot was that person who objected to Mary's extravagant display of worship and love for the Savior. And why shouldn't she? He had raised her dear brother Lazarus from the dead, restored him to life. And her heart must have been overflowing with rejoicing and gladness for what the Lord Jesus had done for her brother. Mary was worshiping because she loves Jesus for saving her brother from the grave. But note very well verse 7, Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. Another gospel says that she had anointed him beforehand for his burial. 
Think of it. This celebration was of the resurrection of Lazarus, but Christ taught that Mary's devotion was for the burial of himself, the Savior. You see how is brought together in this incident, both Christ's power to raise from the dead and Christ's burial and suffering for his people. That at a celebration of a resurrection, the Lord Jesus should point out that he would soon be put to death and buried. The one who raised from the grave must lay down his own life. Indeed, Christ's death is the awful price that he paid for our resurrection. For without the death of Christ, there could be no remission of sin. Without the remission of sin, there could be no justification of his people. Without the remission of sin and the payment of the debt for our sin by the Lord Jesus, there could be no legal or moral right to raise up his people and rescue us from the grave. Note well that Mary would be too late, you see, to anoint the body of Christ in the tomb. They went there, they bought all the spices and ointments, didn't they? And they showed up that Lord's Day morning, but they were too late, weren't they? He had already been raised from the grave. So Jesus allowed her to do so in advance, as it were. She anointed him for his burial because he would not be so anointed by his loved ones when he rose in power and glory. He snatched away, you see, their final act of mourning and dedication. And so it took place beforehand. So that afterwards, all they could do was shout with joy and thanksgiving that Christ their Lord was risen indeed. Now vignette number two. Don't think I've ever preached on this vignette before. The next day, the scriptures tell us, there is this incident of the securing of the cult. As Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem, we know the story well. He sent his disciples into town to fetch a cult that had never been ridden upon. We read of this in Mark 11, chapter 1. When they came nigh to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door, without in a place where two ways met. And they loose him, and certain of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye loosing the colt? They said unto him, Even as Jesus had commanded. And they let them go, and they brought the colt to Jesus. So you see, these people consented when they were told that the Lord Jesus had need of the colt. The owner consented. The colt was loaned to Jesus so that he might ride that colt into the city of Jerusalem. And then the third vignette is the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. And we read of this in Luke's Gospel, the 19th chapter, at verse 
35. And they brought him to Jesus, that is the colt. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Notice it says, the people cried out, The King that cometh in the name of the Lord. And this was strange, wasn't it? Because he was riding upon a colt. And you know, this imagery is jarring, if you will, because normally kings ride on war horses, don't they? Not colts. One wonders why he couldn't have just walked into town. The effect would have been... To most people, pretty much the same, but there was a reason for it. More details are given in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 21 at verse 8 where we read this, And a very great multitude spread their garments. In the way, others cut down branches from the trees and strewed them in the way. And the multitudes that were before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, notice that they called him the son of David. This is a reference to him as the Messiah, the anointed one, the holy one of Israel, as the psalmist portrays him, the one who was promised to save his people, to redeem his people, the one sent by God, That child that was given, that son that was born, that Isaiah foretold in Isaiah chapter 9. But you notice that there were rebukes that were given to the Lord's people who were crying out these glorious things about the Lord Jesus. First of all, the Scriptures tell us that the Pharisees rebuked the disciples. We see this in Luke chapter 19 at verse 39 where it says, Some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Here is Christ embracing what the people were saying about him. That he is the king from heaven. That he is the son of David. That he is the Messiah. That he is here to bring salvation to His people. Blessed be He that cometh in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees wanted Him to repudiate what the people were saying. But Jesus would have none of it. 
Instead, he points out that this is ordained by God, you see, that if they did hold their peace, then the stones would have to cry out, which would be a manifest miracle from God, and which puts God's stamp of approval upon what the people are saying. And then secondly, notice the chief priests and the scribes rebuked Christ's disciples and the children who joined into the praise. We see this in Matthew chapter 21 at verse 15. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased. And said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. So you see that Christ is putting his stamp of approval upon what the children said as a fulfillment of the prophecy found in Psalm chapter 8 at verse 2 that God would use the praises of babes and sucklings, little children, hardly weaned, if you will, maybe not even weaned, He would use their praise to exalt His Messiah. Not only that, to empower His Messiah. And so Jesus embraced the words of His disciples and the children. He is the Son of David. He is the King come down from on high. He is the promised Messiah who would save His people. He had come indeed to save His people. Now these are the three vignettes. These are the facts of what happened on that glorious weekend. But how did God use them to accomplish His will? Have you ever thought of that? Not in a way that the Lord's people predicted, for sure, or understood at the time, or even wanted to come to pass. No, they had the notion of exalting Christ. They had the notion of Him kicking off His great kingdom rule. The people now were behind Him, or so they thought. And they were acknowledging who Christ really was, and that was good. And it couldn't be long before the Lord Jesus would take unto Him His mighty power, would rule over His people, would kick out all the Roman interlopers, would rescue His people from political oppression, and would put away unrighteousness amongst the people. And everything would be idyllic and utopian, all the things they wished for from Messiah. But that's not the way the Lord used any of this at all, is it? Think about the anointing by Mary of the Lord Jesus at the celebration dinner. We read in Mark 14, didn't we, about this glorious incident. Several places in the Scriptures there is a reference to it. I think in three of the four Gospels, if I remember correctly. We read of the anointing by Mary of the Lord Jesus at the celebration dinner. Christ's acceptance and blessing of what Mary did as an anointing for His burial seems to have finally pushed Judas Iscariot over the edge. 
into his calumny and betrayal because we read this at verse 6 of Mark 14. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Remember, John makes it clear that Judas Iscariot was the ringleader in criticizing what Mary had done to Jesus. But Jesus defended her. He said what she had done was a good work. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye shall, ye may do them good. But me, ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial to her. But then notice, and Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went into the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought how he might conveniently betray him. In another place it says they covenanted to pay him 30 pieces of silver. And that fulfilled another prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah. But notice, but notice that here Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Christ seems to have been kicked off by this final incident at this celebration feast where the Lord Jesus sided with Mary and furthermore articulated this truth that he would soon go to be buried, that he would die, that he would be put in the grave. This incident showed Judas Iscariot that all his hopes of self-aggrandizement in the coming messianic kingdom were for naught. See, he was the treasurer of the disciples who followed after Jesus, and maybe he thought he would be chancellor of the exchequer when Messiah established his rule, and then he could really make grift, couldn't he? He could really, really enrich himself as he did good for, for the king. Because he was a thief, John tells us. He wanted that bag to be full so he would have some treasury to loot. But now he saw that there wasn't going to be any chancellor of the exchequer. There wasn't going to be any kingdom at all, as far as he could tell. The Lord Jesus was set on being put to death and buried. All those years he had followed this man were seen to be for nothing, you see. He wasn't following Christ for the salvation. He wasn't following Christ for everlasting life. He was following Christ for the money. And now that that wasn't going to work out, it was best for him to cash out with some prize money to help himself, to ingratiate himself with the rulers and the religious leaders and to salvage what he could for himself. You know, politically, you always got to know what side to jump on and make sure to jump on it in time so that you can cash in, so that you can be with the winner so that you can protect yourself from being on the losing side. And that's what Judas Iscariot was thinking here. And what Mary did to Jesus and how Jesus took it seems to be the thing that pushed Judas Iscariot over the edge to betray Christ. And you remember he did so in the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then think of Vignette 2, the obtaining of the cult. It seemed... Innocent enough. 
and its owners were glad to oblige the Lord Jesus. But it turns out that it was freighted with great significance, for it fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah. We read it this morning at verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And then in John chapter 12, at verse 14, And Jesus, when He had found a young ass, sat thereon as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh, sitting on an ass's colt. These things understood not His disciples at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then remembered they that these things were written of Him, and that they had done these things unto Him. You see, the disciples didn't even realize what they were doing or the significance of it all. They didn't even recall that the Scriptures had foretold this of Messiah, that He would ride, He would come sitting upon a lowly colt. They didn't recognize that they were fulfilling prophecy, that Christ was checking off all the things that must take place to fulfill all of God's Word. You see, it identified the Lord Jesus with the promised Messiah King, meek and lowly and bringing salvation. And wasn't this the truth about Christ? He was meek and lowly of heart, and we shall find rest into our souls, He told His people. And He was bringing salvation, wasn't He? But not the kind they thought they needed, not military salvation, but rather the salvation of a sacrifice, of a lamb slain on the cross. He did not come on a battle horse, but He came on a lowly donkey's colt. Not by violence and force would He save His people, but by sacrifice and death. And in keeping with the meekness and lowliness of heart of Jesus, He rode this colt into Jerusalem to the praises of His people as King. It is not the means His disciples wished, but it was what God wished, wasn't it? And if the disciples did not know the significance of Christ riding into Jerusalem on a colt and being hailed as the King, certainly the legal scholars and the Bible scholars knew, and they were repulsed by it. And it made them angry. And to see Christ sitting there expropriating to himself the images of the prophet Zechariah must have really ramped up their hatred of the Lord Jesus. Then the third vignette, triumphal entry, the praises of Christ, the identification of him as Messiah by the people, the king, the son of David, had that enraging effect upon the rulers upon the ruling class, the Pharisees, the high priests, and the scribes. That's why they demanded Jesus rebuke His disciples and the children and repudiate what they were proclaiming about Jesus. But instead, Jesus embraced it all. Instead, He said it was by the hand of God that these disciples cried out these praises to Him that these children called Him the Son of David. Blessed is He that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus said this was by the will and work of God through these people. 
Listen to what Brother Gill has to say about this phrase, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings thou hast perfected praise. He says in the original text, it is thou hast ordained or founded strength. And glory and strength are mentioned together as being to be given to God, by which it is meant strong glory, or glory and praise expressed with a strong voice, or in a very vehement manner, as it was by these babes and sucklings, and this owing to God disposing them hereunto, putting it into their mouths, and strengthening them to declare it in a very strong and powerful manner, so that His strength was made perfect in their weakness, and His praise all the more glorious. In the psalm it is added, Because of thine enemies, that thou might steal the enemy and the avenger, by which are meant the high priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, the mortal enemies of Christ, who were full of enmity against him, and wanted to revenge themselves on him for spoiling their market at this time, but were stilled by the hosannas of the children and Christ's defense of them. The Jews themselves seem to be conscious that these words relate to the Messiah, for they say that babes and sucklings shall give strength to the King Messiah, manifestly referring to this passage. And you stop and think about how congruent that is with the whole image of Christ riding in on a colt, of Him coming meek and lowly, of Him bringing salvation, of Him being the King who's been sent to save His people. Now here you see that Messiah is given strength. The old Jewish writers said, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, their praise of Messiah lends support for His cause and upholds His gospel in a way that is peculiarly appropriate, isn't it? That He was not defended so much by great orators or rhetoricians or by the powerful and mighty, but rather by the lowliest and the helpless. For those are who He came to save, weren't they? That they should appreciate Him and should glorify Him is indeed most appropriate. And of course does nothing but make these rulers more and more angry because they despise what they would view as the weakness of Christ and the support that He gets for all the good things He does and for the teaching that He gives and for their being frustrated by their failed attempts to discredit Him. And now by these weak and puny things, weak and puny children, and by His no-name disciples with no clout and no power, thinking they could by their praise and glory exalt such a one to be ruler over the nation. And so this strengthened the enemies of Jesus to have Him put to death by the Romans. So He was, five days later, put to death on the cross. Such glory and honor expressed coming of the resurrection of Lazarus and the triumphal entry and the acknowledgement of the people of their Messiah who could have thought all of that would lead to His crucifixion? This was the great mystery and the great frustration of the Lord's people. You know, I wonder if Mary asked herself when Christ was put to death, what have I provoked in Judas Iscariot? What have I provoked if 
Only I hadn't made such a spectacle and angered him so. If only I had played it calm and reserved and restrained and muted, maybe he wouldn't have got so angry and gone off and betrayed the one I love. But Jesus had commended her, and he knew what the consequences would be. Or think of the disciples after Jesus was put to death. We went too far too fast with that public display. We only meant to honor and praise Jesus, but now we've pushed the rulers too far. And they've gone crazy and crucified our Lord. And that's not what we meant. We meant to exalt Him. We meant to honor Him. And now look, He's been crushed in death. And maybe they thought that it was partly their fault. You know, we should have been more circumspect, had more foresight to see how our rulers would react so horribly, and yet Jesus had defended and embraced what His people had said and done on His behalf. In fact, if you think about it, Christ's response to those incidents was itself crucial to the impact they had on the rulers in leading to His crucifixion. You know, if He would have agreed with the Pharisees and the scribes and said, yeah, yeah, I think my people have gone over the, over the edge, they've, they've jumped a shark, you know, I'll tell them to calm it down. No, no, of course not. I don't, I don't accept these characterizations of me. They're, they're, they're simple and confused people, but He didn't do that, you see. He didn't respond the way the rulers demanded that He respond. He just made it worse by embracing what they said, by saying, oh, this is what the prophets have foretold. This is, this is what God has ordained should happen. This is all true. I am the Son of God. I am the promised Messiah. I am the King sent from heaven. I am the Son of David. Come to take my place as Messiah. And so... Christ, in accepting what the people had said and done, He validated it, and, and to the wicked men, He egged on their determination to take Him out, to put Him to death. God's people never wanted Jesus to be put to death, murdered by the nation's rulers. And so their actions led to a result that they despised and mourned the Lord Jesus put the death on the cross. And they hardly ever expected that. But it was what God wanted. And God always gets what He wants. One of the things that is the hardest for believers to learn and to embrace is that God always gets what He wants. Because we see things that we don't want that we get. And we think, well, surely God didn't want that to happen. But God has greater wisdom and knowledge. He has infinite wisdom and knowledge. And we are so foolish and weak and ignorant and selfish and short-sighted and all those things that make us poor, fallen, sinful men distinguish us from the mighty wisdom and power of God. He always gets what He wants. And His people soon come to understand this. The problem is we come to understand it in particular cases, but we fail to generalize the truth that God ordains what He wants. And that's what He gets. And after a dispute with 
the same leaders. A little while later, we see how the disciples came to understand how God always gets what He wants. You remember, they rounded up the apostles because they had healed this man in an impudent way, and they couldn't gainsay it. Everybody knew he was lame from his birth, and they healed him. And he was well known, and people recognized him, and there was no way they could undercut what had happened, and they couldn't deny it, and the people glorified God for it. And they did it in the name of Christ, and they proclaimed it was by the power of the resurrected Christ, whom the rulers had taken out and cruelly and falsely crucified. And so, when the rulers had to let them go after warning them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, which they said they would refuse to obey, we read in Acts 4, when they go to report to the disciples... Verse 24, when they heard that, that is when the disciples heard what the apostles had just experienced, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. See, that's their declaration of the almighty, unlimited power of the God that they serve and that they pray to. Who by the mouth of thy servant David hath said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. So you see they're reciting to God the prophecy of David that the people would rebel against Christ. And sure enough, they had. What we often take as a rhetorical question in Psalm 2, they here give the answer. They've discovered the answer to the question. Why did they... Rebel against Christ. Why? We think that's just a reference to how foolish it is. But no, it's a real question. Why did the wicked people rebel against Christ? Why? And the saints of the early church answer it. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and the Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together in rebellion. For to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. So now you see the answer to what seemed to be a rhetorical question was, well, they rebelled against Christ so that what God determined should happen to Christ would be fulfilled, that He should be crucified, made a sacrifice, that the Lamb should be offered for the sin of His people, and that He should then be raised in power and glory unto the resurrection of all of His people whom He has redeemed. This is the reason why these people did these dreadful, violent, cruel, wicked things. This is why they did it. To accomplish God's purpose. You see how the providence of God used all these things to push along His purpose to deliver up His Lamb as a sacrifice for sinners. All of these unpredictable consequences, the betrayal of Judas Iscariot after he saw Mary's offering and love and Christ's acceptance of it as an anointing of His burial. After the Lord Jesus borrowed the colt, and no doubt the rulers and the Bible scholars recognized He was appropriating the claim of Zechariah 9.9 to be the king of righteousness and salvation coming in lowliness 
unto His people. And after the Lord Jesus embraced the praises of the disciples and of the little children in the temple, rejoicing over Him as Messiah, as the Son of David, as the King of God, and drove those wicked men to go ahead and plot and crucify the Lord Jesus. You see how the providence of God used all these things to push along His purpose to deliver up His Lamb as a sacrifice for sinners? The disciples and the apostles understood it perfectly after it had happened, just not before. What His people did not want, their acts promoted according to God's divine purpose and pushed along wicked men to maliciously offer up the Savior on Calvary's tree. The lesson is, for God's people to always do what is right, to tell the truth, to exalt the Savior, and let God work out His will in all things. Because it's hopeless for us to predict how that will happen. Might as well stop wasting time worrying about it and just purpose to do what is right, to praise the Lord, to worship Him, to announce His gospel to all who will hear. You know, today, as every Lord's Day, we are celebrating a consequence of God's using His people to push forward His great act of salvation and redemption. We celebrate that around the Lord's table with these elements that Christ ordained. The bread to picture His body broken to save His people. The cup picturing His blood poured out to make a remission of sin. That is a forgiveness of sin to all who trust in Jesus. You know, it's good that we cannot know the consequences of our obedient deeds. Else we would take pride in them. Perhaps it's best that we never know how the Lord uses what we do in obedience to Him in praise to Him, in glory to Him, in worship to Him. Perhaps it's best never to know so that we can never be lifted up in pride. To think that we made it happen, because it's not we that made it happen. It's God that used, that directed, that controlled, that ordained all things after the counsel of His will that He might accomplish our redemption. God knows best. We just need to be faithful and obedient and worship Him always. So let's give thanks around this Lord's table, around what it signifies, about what it reminds us of. Let us not forget how the Lord used the faithfulness and the praise and the honor that His people gave Him, gave to Christ, to drive, to flog the people in control into doing what it was that God had ordained beforehand that they should murder His Son, that He should be made an offering for our sin to save us and to set us free. I'd like to ask Brother Witten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. The Scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice 
that we can come before you remembering what Christ did for us on the cross all those years ago, how he shed his precious blood as your lamb, slain for our sin, slain in his love for us. We thank you that you used and orchestrated all the acts of men, both good and evil, in order to accomplish your will that we should be saved. And no doubt all through the strands of time there have been a constantly interwoven scheme by which you have drawn all your people to yourself and orchestrating all the consequences and all the incidents of our lives and of our forefathers' lives and that you have brought each of your people who've trusted in Christ unto faith and repentance by the work of the Holy Ghost and caused us to trust in Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this cup that pictures the blood that he shed, that he might forgive our sins by being judged in our place, by being made a curse for us. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Lord, we thank you that his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness, that fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. And we thank you for the blood of Christ that purges our guilt and our sin and sets us free. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that He took the cup after they had supped and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 43 in the black book. By faith I look where Christ has gone and see upon His Father's throne a man with glory crowned. His brow is marred and on His side whence flowed the cleansing crimson tide. The marks of love are found. Number 43.